0: Ooh, don't wait. Visit SonoBello.com slash save. SonoBello.com slash save. SonoBello.com slash save.
2: You're listening to the X Zone radio show live and around the world on the Talk Star Radio Network. Visit us online at www.xzone radio.com.
4: mad about saffron Saffron's mad about me Welcome
2: back to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell here on the Talkstar Radio Network. Our toll-free number is one 877 528 That's toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii at one 877 Our email address is xzone at talkstarradio.com. On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at hotmail.com and our website, www.exoneradiotv.com. My guest this hour is Dr. Seth Shostak. Uh, Seth holds a degree in physics from Princeton University and a Ph.D. in astronomy from California Institute of Technology. For much of his career, he has conducted radio astronomy research on galaxies and has published approximately 40 papers in professional journalism. For more than a decade, he has worked at the Cape Town Astronomical Institute in the Netherlands using the Westerbrook Radio Synthesis Telescope. He has also written several hundred popular articles on various topics in astronomy, technology, film, and television. For more than 30 years, Seth has been producing his own films, many of them popular among science pieces used for television. He founded and ran a computer animation firm in Holland, uh, that made leaders and shorts for the uh, networks and other video producers and now lecturers on astronomy and other subjects at the California Academy of Sciences. Seth is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. And as always, Seth, welcome to the show. How are you?
3: Yes, fine, Rob. Good to be with you.
2: Seth, uh, last Friday night, I guess you kind of made history being on the Larry King Show uh, with uh, four gentlemen who, who were trying to convince the world that UFOs actually uh, invaded uh, restricted airspace over nuclear missile sites and were actually shutting them down. One thing that I noticed was that there was no evidence that was brought forward by these people to substantiate any of their claims.
3: Well, that's true. I think that the uh, the show, and, and by the way, Larry King uh, was on a UFO binge uh, this last month. I think mm-hmm. uh, at least three, possibly four shows in a row every Friday night were UFO shows. So I, I, he's definitely into the topic. I was on two of the shows, actually. Uh, but the one you're referring to, they had an expert come in who had uh, looked at the radar reports from radars in the area of Stephenville and uh, were uh, you know looking for uh, un- unidentifiable radar echoes. And I think that's what motivated that particular show.
2: And did they find any?
3: Well, there's, there's, there's many, many hundreds. Like, I showed a plot. I mean, maybe even a 1,000 radar echoes. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that per se, of course, is not so surprising. And in fact, if there hadn't been all those radar echoes, I, I would be kind of worried, because it's well known that there were military aircraft operating in that area that evening, and the military eventually said that they were. They, at first, they were somewhat disingenuous and said they weren't there, and then they said they were, and apparently they were. So the question is not whether there were radar echoes and not whether the radar echoes were bouncing off these military craft. The question was, are any of those echoes in some way anomalous coming from some sort of craft that we don't have?
2: Seth, stand by. You and I have to take a two-minute commercial break. We'll be right back. Dr. Seth Shostak is our very special guest, and uh, Seth will be with us this hour. If you'd like to give us a call, ExoNation, and ask uh, Seth any questions pertaining to astronomy or the SETI Institute, Give us a call at one 528 8255 That's toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii at 1-877-528-8255. Email exonetalkstarradio.com On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonetalkstarradio.com. I'll be back in two minutes with Dr. Seth Shostak as we continue live and around the world right here on the Talk Star Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada.
5: We begin with shocking allegations that UFOs have interfered with missiles at U.S. Air Force bases, and aliens are monitoring nuclear warheads and bombs. Our first guests claim UFOs have activated missile systems at five Air Force bases in five different states. They also claim a cover-up, that the United States government is keeping the information secret. Former Air Force officers and an investigator are here with their stories. Here in Los Angeles is Robert Hastings. He's author of UFOs and Nukes. I have the book right here. The book is available at ufohastings.com. He has been investigating sightings at weapon sites for years. Bob Salas is a former captain U.S. Air Force Base at the U.S. Air Force. He was at Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1967 where there were claims a UFO caused missiles to malfunction. He's co-author of Faded Giant. Uh, Bob Jamison is with us, former U.S. Air Force officer. He was at Malmstrom as well in 1967, and he says his superiors told him UFOs caused the malfunctions. And in Peoria, Illinois, Dr. Bob Jacobs, former first lieutenant, U.S. Air Force, former U.S. Air Force photographic instrumentation officer, a UFO showed up on film that he shot in 1964 at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and that was later confiscated by CIA agents. All of our guests are named Bob, so I'm going to call them by that last name. Welcome week.
2: back to the X Zone. Uh, that is part of a clip of the uh, Larry King show that played last Friday night on CNN. I'd like to thank CNN for uh, that clip. Uh, once again, we have so many questions that were brought up, Seth. Uh, for example, this uh, Dr. Jacob said that his his uh, his footage was confiscated by the CIA. Now, why would the CIA confiscate Air Force material?
3: Yeah, well, actually, this is a this is the, <laughs> the second Larry King show that I was on. What I was telling you about Stephenville yeah. was the first Larry King show, and that was a week earlier. Uh, but this one, indeed, this guy Jacobs uh, came in uh, via satellite into the show, and he claimed that, indeed, he had shot this film, 16-millimeter film, mm-hmm. and then it was confiscated by, you know, the CIA, as you say, and he's sure that it proved the existence of alien craft that were messing around with some of our military exercises. Now, when, in fact, he was asked by King, did you actually see this? He said, no, he only saw the film. He didn't actually see it with his eyes. He only saw the film, and he only saw it once. Now, that's a little bit suspicious, because, of course, the film has limited resolution. That's right. And this, that, and the other. But but some, several other things he said. I was not in on this segment, by the way, but I was watching it, of course, in the studio. And. Several things he said were very perplexing to me. For example, he said that there was a 2,500-inch lens on the 16-millimeter camera. Well, 2,500 inches is—I may get this wrong—but I think that's about 200 foot. That would be a really long lens. <laughs> I think I think that would really wear out your arm or your, your tripod. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of thing. Uh, The other thing—I mean, you know—such a lens that's longer than the focal length of you know astronomical telescopes. That just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, the second thing he said was was that uh, this this thing was 600 or 800 miles away, right? Well, how high does it have?
6: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you.
0: don't wait visit sono slash save sono slash save sono slash save
3: have to be up into the up in the air in order for you able to you to be able to even see it from 600 miles away without it being below the curve of the earth and that's a simple calculation which i made in my head actually because it's so simple but it turns out it has to be on the order of 100 miles up right well <laughs> What were they doing 100 miles up? I mean, that's that's, that's in orbit.
2: That's right, I, and, uh, and a missile doesn't go that high.
3: Oh, no, no, and certainly not aircraft. I mean, it was just... Uh, I, I didn't know whether to believe anything this guy was saying, and then I have to say this to you, Rob, because later on, there was a skeptic, actually, on that panel. It was Bill Nye.
2: Oh, he veteran, was great.
3: Bill Nye, known as the science guy. But, uh, this guy, Jacobs, came after him right away and began oh, calling boy. him, you little comedian, and then all the guys on the panel began to uh, laugh at Bill Nye, which I thought was uh, rather unfortunate, because this isn't about whether you like Bill Nye or not. He was simply trying to get at what could this have been uh, other than your assumption that it was an alien craft.
2: And he was giving very logical explanations and uh, very uh, very logical arguments.
3: Well, I thought so, but yeah. then again, I might have been partial to that. I, to be honest, uh, I, I was somewhat nonplussed by the vitriol uh, that that I I heard then, and then subsequent to the show, of course, I got a whole stack of emails, most of which were not terribly friendly, as <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, and and I I have to say that that really puzzles me. Why it is that the question of whether we're being visited or not, which is after all a very legitimate question, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it it doesn't violate physics to have aliens come to Earth, but if you're going to make the claim, then show me the best evidence. But the ad hominem attacks, the the personal attacks on from both sides, I have to say, but usually it's the you know, the attacks on the skeptics uh, by the people who do UFO research. It just doesn't make sense to me, but I see it all the time.
2: All right, let's go to our phones. We have David in Ottawa joining us. David listens to the XON on AM 580 CFRA. Hi, David. Hi. Go ahead, Dr. Seth Shostak's with us.
5: Yes, okay. One of my better calls tonight. You know, we just found out this evening that there's water on Mars, and... You know, I always believed that there was life on Mars, and I still believe that there's air on Mars. And I believe Mars needs women. What do you think of that?
3: (laughs) Well, I don't know that it needs women right now because they wouldn't be very comfortable, David. Uh, There is an atmosphere on Mars. You're right about it.
5: My line's really scratchy, but uh, I'm going to let you go. All right, thanks for calling, David.
3: Women on Mars. Well, I mean, uh, it, it could be. I thought that women were actually from Venus, but I mm-hmm. guess that's his point, that men are from Mars and there are no women there. Uh, actually, the, the, the problem with Mars as, in terms of living there uh, these days, of course, is that the atmosphere is only about one, 1% as thick as the Earth, and there's not much oxygen in it. It's mostly carbon dioxide. So, you know, you have to wear a spacesuit. suit. Or, and, and also, uh, you know, there's a lot of ultraviolet radiation there because uh, the atmosphere is so thin. So you need to protect yourself. It's not a, It's not a friendly environment. Mars, But we'll, we can go there and we can build, you know, obviously we can build some sort of structures to protect ourselves. And maybe over the long term, people talk about fixing Mars up, terraforming Mars, and turning it into a kinder, gentler world. That's possible, but it would take a, a long time and a big investment.
2: Seth, why are people so intent on believing that there are UFOs buzzing around the atmosphere?
3: Well, I think it's to begin with, it would be extraordinarily uh, interesting to, mm-hmm. to think that the aliens were here, or to find out that they are, if, if you're convinced that they are. Uh, that, that would be interesting. It's also, you, you notice what they do. They they tend to abduct people, right? I mean, other, other than that, I'm not quite sure what they've done. They've, they've buzzed the countryside for, what, in more than 60 years since Roswell. Roswell was a singular action by the aliens because they came who knows how many hundreds of light years Uh, And then in the last, you know, 50 or 100 feet, they make a navigation error and crash into the dirt in New Mexico. That doesn't speak well of their uh, their piloting skills. But you know, aside from that, all they've done is they they buzz around and then they occasionally abduct people. The buzzing around doesn't seem to have any consequence, other than we get a lot of sightings. Because you know, when I go down to the local airport to fly somewhere, uh, they never delay the flights because there are alien craft in the way and they you know they don't know where they're going to go and they haven't filed us flight plan, plan, and the FAA doesn't want me to fly. So there's no, no consequences from that. As far as the abductions go, I don't see lots of people up in arms about the fact that their spouses are being abducted uh, for these unauthorized experiments, but there is something nice about it. If you don't have much of a social life, I mean, at least somebody's showing some interest in you, so maybe that's part of the appeal. I don't know, but bottom line, I think it's because here's a situation where, you know, Just plain folk who don't work in science or research or astronomy or anything like that can know something that those pointy-headed academics down at the local university don't know and won't own up to. And there's something very appealing about that idea, I suspect.
2: Seth, the uh, NASA today um, claimed is saying that, you know, there is water on Mars. What does this mean to the uh, astronomical societies?
3: Well be honest, I'm not quite sure why it's such a huge story, but it it is getting, you know, big play Mm -hmm. uh, because this is the first time that they've actually taken a piece of ice and melted it and saw that at, you know, at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees centigrade, uh, it melts and it turns into water molecules. Amazing. Yeah, it's really water. Now, mind you, you know, 250 years ago, people looked at Mars through telescopes and they saw these white patches on the top and the bottom, the the polar caps, and they said, well, it's probably water ice. And, And it turns out that it it is, but a lot of it is, anyhow. But, you know, they, they didn't know. And now, in some sense, we know. It, it's not terribly surprising to find that there's water on Mars, in my opinion. I mean, there's been incredible evidence of that for a long time. But the, the really, you know, the, the import of all this is that if you had a lander that didn't just scrape up the dirt, you know, down a couple of inches but went down 100 feet or 200 feet, you might find liquid water. And liquid water, of course, is uh, the, the crucial ingredient for life. So there might be Martians. They'd be very small, I think, but uh, there might be Martians, and that's what this is pointing to.
2: Why is why is the space program so interested in Mars? What what's what's there to gain for humanity on this planet by exploring Mars?
3: Yeah, well, part of it is historical, Rob, because you know, uh, back a uh, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. The only planet you could really see the surface of with a telescope was Mars. I mean, you could see the surface of the moon, but that, that wasn't a planet, and the moon was clearly without any atmosphere and without any water. They even knew that uh, uh, 200 years ago. But you look at Jupiter, you know, you see nice stripes and stuff like that, but that's the that's the weather. Now, you're looking at the atmosphere. You look at Saturn, you're looking at the atmosphere. You look at Venus, it's just a big white ball because it's covered with these thick clouds. Only Mars had a clear atmosphere that you could see down through with the telescopes uh, that we used to have. And these days we can do better on some of the other worlds. But, you know, that, that was part of the appeal. It looked like the Earth. It had these polar caps. It also has it, the length of the day is pretty much the same as Earth. It's uh, 24 hours in some, right? The tilt of the, the axis is, you know, a few degrees uh, greater than Earth's axis. So it has seasons just the way we do. There are a lot of things about Mars that are very similar to Earth. Uh, we now know, you know, it has rocks, it apparently has liquid water, or at least has water, maybe mm-hmm. not liquid. Uh, so it's the only planet in our solar system that's even, you know, reasonably close to Earth's conditions. And consequently, you know, it's the best bet, or many people think it's the best bet, for having some sort of life. And you might say, well, okay, so you find some microbes 100 feet down on Mars, so what? I mean, pond scum on Mars, I got, I got pond scum in my bathtub, <laughs> right, why, why go to Mars? Why spend all the money to do that? And the point is that if you found pond scum on Mars, that would tell you right away that life is not a miracle. The next planet out has life, so there's life all over the place.
2: Which also means that Martians are dirty
3: because uh, you've well, got pond scum, yeah. <laughs> yeah pond, scum. Well, pond scum is only dirty, you know, from our point of view. From the from the scum's point of view, it's probably okay.
2: Seth, stand by. You and I have to take a commercial break. Dr. Seth Shostak is our very special guest. He is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Their website is www.seti.org. That's www.seti.org. Now watch, I'm going to get emails from Martians uh, saying that they're not dirty. If I do, Seth, I'll uh, send you copies of them. We'll be back on the other side of the news as the Exxon continues on the Talk Star Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.
6: There's a family-friendly TV channel you can watch on the Internet, direct from space with no subscription fee, and on a growing list of TV stations and cable systems. For information and how to watch free online, go to www.whitesprings.tv. To watch anywhere in the U.S., Canada, or Mexico, all you need is a small dish and digital receiver costs about $125. You own it outright and never pay a cent for our programming. Our movies are presented commercial-free. Between movies, we bring you cartoons, soundies, previews, and classic TV. Check our schedule and actually watch online at www.whitesprings.tv. New from the people who brought you Talk Star Radio. Tell your friends there's a new kind of TV. Whitesprings.tv
2: Amethyst works with your guides, angels, and spirit animals to assist you in catalyzing your inner healer, clearing your psychic and spiritual debris, integrating your lost soul parts, illuminating your journey, energizing your spirit, opening your psychic senses, exercising your multidimensional gifts, Activating your purpose, empowering your soul, validating your experiences, navigating life's transitions, guiding your process, awakening your spiritual essence, balancing your energies, tapping into the creative flow, realizing your dreams, visioning your destiny, dreaming your world into being, being who you really are. Amethyst is an Exxon iPod partner and can be visited online at www.answersfromyourangels.com Or from your exone iPod by touching the Angels widget on the main screen. Amethyst. www.answersfromyourangels.com
3: My name is Michael Telstar, Canada's leading mentalist from Toronto, Ontario...
5: Hi, my name is Swinza, and you're listening to my dad, Rob McConnell, on the X-Zone. This is
2: Psychic Dorothy from St. Catharines, and you're listening to Rob McConnell. Hello, my name
0: is Holly Reeves, an astrologer from astro for You, and you're listening to Canada's number one
3: paranormal radio show, The X-Zone, with Rob McConnell.
5: Welcome to The X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction, and fiction is
2: Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. Coming to you live and around the world on the Talk Star Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Seth Shostak is our special guest. His website is www.seti.org. Seth, we're going to go to our phones. We have Leslie in Ottawa joining us. Hi, Leslie.
5: Hi, uh, Mr. O'Connell.
2: Uh, Seth Shostak's on the air with us. Go right ahead, sir.
5: Yeah. Um, I was just kind of thinking, like, maybe one of the ways of... Um viewing UFO things, is, you know how they
3: talk in quantum mechanics about uh, teleportation or the um, uh, the vibration of particles, you know, like uh, what they call, um, uh, the, oh, I can't think right now, but anyways, you know, maybe it's just like, you know, there's, the... bye. What was that? Well I, I think that what he was suggesting is that maybe david was was trying to get to the point that that UFOs might be using physics, uh, quantum physics, or maybe even physics we don't yet know about to affect their uh, travel from distant locales to earth. And uh, you know that's been suggested that's a, that's a legitimate suggestion. The trouble with invoking physics we don't know is that we don't know it. And so, you know, you're kind of stuck having said that. It's like saying, well, you know, maybe they come through the 7th, 8th, and ninth dimensions, but since we don't know how you could do that, I mean, you can't really do any tests, and you can't, you know, sort of pursue the idea farther. I mean, it, it really isn't actually necessary to say that they, they use wormholes or they use quantum teleportation or, you know, uh, action at a distance and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can, you can get from one star to the next with a rocket if you really want to. It, it takes a long time, takes a lot of energy. That isn't the point. The point is, if we're being visited, then where's the good evidence? Where's the evidence that we could put in the Ontario Science Museum? That's what we're looking
2: for. I'm still trying to understand the significance of water on Mars. All right, so, all right, it it would show that there is the possibility that life could exist. Is there a possibility or is there a link, Seth, that what happened to Mars may in fact happen to Earth?
3: Well, Mars did go bad, and, and so did Venus, by the way. And Venus might be a better analog for what could happen to the Earth than Mars. What happened with Mars is that it's, it's a run. It's it's smaller than Earth, considerably small. And the consequences of that are, to begin with, it doesn't have plate tectonics anymore, and that, that could really ruin your whole future if you don't have a, uh, the shifting plates, because they play a very important role in recycling carbon dioxide back into our atmosphere. Uh, so if you don't have that, you know, you'd, you'd have trouble... But the real problem with Mars is that it lost its atmosphere, or most of it. It lost 99% of it. Okay, and so it got very, very cold, very, very dry, and uh, essentially lifeless, certainly on the surface under, underneath it, might be okay. Now, would that happen to Earth? That doesn't seem like a very likely scenario. Venus, on the other hand, uh, just got too much carbon dioxide into its atmosphere. It had a greenhouse effect run amok. And so the consequence on Venus is that uh, the weather report for tomorrow are temperatures of 800 degrees. And by the way, the day after tomorrow also 800 degrees, and tonight also 800 degrees. So, you know, that <laughs> we might we might approach that if we continue to pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I, I doubt we'll ever get to the situation of Venus, but Venus might give us some some lessons and what to watch out for here on Earth.
2: When we're looking at uh, the, the the solar system, as, as you see it as a, as an astronomer, what do we have to learn? about these planets and how it relates to us here on this planet?
3: Well, of course, there's a lot to learn. I mean, a lot of it is just, if you will, abstract, well, maybe not abstract, but I mean astronomical knowledge about how did the solar system form. Mm -hmm. One of the big surprises of the past 10 years is that we're finding planets around other stars. We found something like 300 of them. Uh, But, you know, very few of those planetary systems are anything like our own solar system. We just assumed everybody's solar system would be kind of like ours, where you have small planets on the inside and big planets on the outside. And, you know, most of the ones we found are just the other way around, or at least the big ones are on the inside. And so there's something to be learned there about how it all happened, and that's interesting to people, to to astronomers at least, but I think also to the general public, because, you know, where we came from is always interesting. But the the thing to learn about uh, the rest of our solar system that I think is most directly applicable uh, to, to most people is the question of life. Is life some sort of extraordinarily rare event? And it happened on this planet, but gosh darn it, despite the fact that there are probably tens of billions of other Earth-like worlds in our galaxy, let alone the other galaxies, you know, that they're all sterile, or do a lot of them have life, and some of them even have intelligent life? And we can learn something about that by studying the other planets of our solar system, because, you know, we were talking about water on Mars, but there are a half-dozen other worlds in our solar system that might have water as well so you know if you think that you need water to have uh, the kind of chemistry that makes life you know studying these worlds will tell you how often do you find a world with water
2: one of our listeners just sent me an email her name is uh, sharon she's listening to us in kentucky and sharon would like to know what your opinion is of the planet x niburu is it a myth or is it reality
3: yeah, well, there's, there's, across the street from me is the NASA Ames Research Center, and there's a fellow over there who worries about asteroid impacts and so forth, and I'm told that he's gotten something like four or 500 emails about Nibiru in the past couple of days. People worried about it, but I, I think that this is one thing that uh, you really don't have to lose sleep over because, honestly, if there was some world that routinely came into the inner solar system to wreak havoc and destruction, even if it only did it every 30,000 years or every 50,000 years or even every 100,000 years, right, that still means it has made tens of thousands of trips to the inner solar system. It would have disrupted all the orbits of the planets. We would see that. It probably would have hit Jupiter by now and then wiped it out. This, this is a fiction. I'm afraid that if there were such an object, you would, you would see the consequences of it. It makes a good story, but I don't think you should lie awake at night worrying about it.
2: One eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five is toll free. Doctor Seth Shostak is our special guest, and uh, Seth, talking about uh, meteor impact, how long, or how far in advance would the scientific community know that there is that we are on a course with the, with uh, on a collision course with a meteor or an asteroid before it actually had impact here on this planet?
3: Well, it just depends on how much money you want to spend looking for them. That's it, it, It's like an insurance policy. You know, how much you're going to get paid in case something happens to you depends on how much premium you're willing to spend, I think. Uh, what we do know on the basis of work that's been done so far is that there's nothing out there that's bigger than a kilometer, you know, a half a mile or so. That's going to hit us in the next 30 years. There's one exception uh, that we have to watch. In 2029, it's going to go fairly close to the earth, and we have to see what it actually does, there's only about a, you know, less than a 1% chance that it will ever hit us, but, you know, we we should watch that, even a 1% chance is worth looking at. So when it comes to big rocks, we know for 30 years out that we're safe. But if you talk about small rocks, for example, the rock that uh, made that big crater in in Tungusta in Siberia in 1908, that, that rock was about the size of a house.
2: You mean that had nothing to do with uh, one of Tesla's uh, experiments?
3: <laughs> no, I don't think it did. had to do with a rock. <laughs> and, 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 you know, recent calculations sort of shown that that rock was actually a little smaller than was originally thought. People thought it was a little bigger than, than the current calculation suggests. But, what you know, it was only 100 feet across as opposed to 200 feet. Now, you might say, well, how does that affect me, the car buyer? What do I care whether it was 100 feet or 200 feet? The reason you care is that smaller rocks, there are a lot more smaller rocks than there are big rocks. Just like animals, there are a lot more small animals than there are big ones. A lot more mosquitoes than there are elephants, right? Exactly. So, so so the the facts are that if a hundred foot rock can make a hole, you know, almost a mile across, I mean, it could completely wipe out downtown Hamilton, right? And how often do those things fall? Every couple of hundred years. See, so and we don't know about those. So, with those, you'd have zero warning. You would just, you know, you'd just see uh, downtown Toronto vaporized. And you might think, well, that's not such a loss, but on the other hand, we wouldn't have any warning.
2: Seth, tell us about the SETI Institute and what the SETI Institute is up to.
3: Well, the SETI Institute, of course, uh, SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and, and we do do the SETI experiments. In fact, that's what I do, of course. That's my thing. My but, in fact, the majority of the scientists here are not doing SETI. They're doing what's called astrobiology. So they're worried about, you know, things like Mars, ice on Mars, Several of the uh, scientists connected with the Phoenix uh, Lander Project are right here at the SETI Institute, although they're spending a lot of time down in Tucson these days because that's where it's all being run out of, but they're they're SETI Institute scientists. We have other scientists that worry about how life got started, that worry about uh, rocks in space, that worry about uh, maybe finding life on some of the moons of Jupiter. There are at least three moons of Jupiter that probably have very large oceans. They're just you know, under the surface where it's tough to get to them. But, you know, they may have life in those oceans, too. So mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of work we do as well. Also education, outreach, that sort
2: of thing. Got a question here for you from Jason in Texas. Uh, Jason uh, would like to know uh, da, 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 if all we have is shortwave AM and FM capabilities for listening, what if the ETs from elsewhere use a form of signals that may not be within our capabilities to hear them, or what if they communicate by telepathy?
3: Well, yeah, well, then we won't hear them, will we? I mean, that's the bottom line simple there, Jason. Now, to begin with, telepathy, I don't, I'm not convinced that telepathy works, and a lot of people are, but I think that if telepathy really worked, then the phone company would have research teams you know, looking at that. And at the very least, you would expect some people at Las Vegas would be regularly winning because they'd have somebody, you know, reading the dealer's cards or something like that. I don't know. But forget telepathy. But the other idea that, you know, maybe uh, they're using some sort of or, or some frequency, some wavelength that we're not tuned into, or maybe, again, some physics that we don't know about, well, of course, those are real real possibilities. And you can only do what you can do. Uh, you, you know, Based on what you know. Yeah, you you have to proceed on the basis of what you know and what you can build. Mm -hmm. That's that's a limitation, but, you know, uh, Chris Columbus had limitations, too. He could only build wooden ships. He couldn't build steam-powered ships, but, you know, the wooden ships were good enough.
2: I understand he tried to build a steam-powered ship, but uh, the uh, Queen said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, Goa. Yes. (laughs) Since said he has been searching the skies has there ever been an instant where the a signal has come through to you people that that the it looked like it might be that signal that you've been searching for?
3: Yes that has happened and in fact you get false alarms fairly frequently because you know the system's very sensitive it's got you know you're using big antennas and you're mm-hmm. typically listening to tens of millions actually these days more like a hundred million channels at once not surprising that you pick up signals. Uh, the, the question is, you know, <laughs> what are these signals? Are they really ET? Are they just, you know, the radar set down at the local airport? So you have to you have to separate all that out. But we have, on occasion, gotten signals that mimic the behavior of true extraterrestrial signals for fairly long periods of time. Uh, in one case, in 1997, a little over 10 years ago, we had a signal that, for most of a day, seemed to be uh, the real deal, and that was very interesting because it was a good if you will, practice run for what would happen if we got a real one, because you you saw what happened. We we, we thought it might be real, and, you know, I kept waiting for somebody to come in and shut it all down, but uh, that didn't happen. All that happened was that the newspapers began to call up.
2: Did you ever discover what that signal was?
3: Yes, we did, actually. Uh, It was the SOHO satellite, which is a solar research satellite, mostly run by the Europeans, so we could blame the Europeans again. Uh, It's a million miles away, and it has a transmitter on board that's Roughly 10 watts in power, as I recall. And, you know, that's a pretty distant transmitter with only a pipsqueak power rating. But on the other hand, for a SETI system, that's a very powerful signal. So that's what it was.
2: If SETI was to receive the signal from the ETs, what would the age of that signal be?
3: Well, it depends entirely on how far away they are. And, of course, we don't know that. Uh, If you look at the estimates that have been made of how many societies might be in the galaxy that are broadcasting. They range from, you know, very optimistic uh, estimates like Carl Sagan estimated a million or so down to fairly conservative estimates. Frank Grace here at the Institute estimates 10,000. Well, if you just take that range, then that means that the aliens are on the order of 100 to 1,000 light years away, the nearest one. But, you know, I mean, that is a guess. That's the range of estimates by smart people but the bottom line is we don't know.
2: Let me see. Uh, da, 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 da. Karen from St. Bruno, Quebec, would like to know, how realistic was the movie contact when it comes to a SETI project?
3: Well, with, the, with regard to the SETI content of contact, it was pretty accurate. After all, Carl Sagan you know, knows about SETI. He's done some SETI. It, mm-hmm. He had done some SETI. And he was well-versed with the people who worked here, two of of whom actually, if you will, appeared in the film. I mean, not playing themselves, but the the Jodie Foster character was Jill Carter, mostly. And there was a blind physicist, a guy by the name of Kent Cullors, worked here, the blind physicist. And uh, so, you know, that part of the film was quite accurate. Of course, you know, getting in the machine and going off to Vega and all that, that, that's fiction. Now, mind you, I, I was one of the consultants for the film, as were several other people here at the Institute, so, to some extent, we could uh, correct some of the technical errors before they occurred. I, I have to say we didn't correct all of them by any means, but we, we got some of them.
2: What did you think when you saw the final uh, cut?
3: Well, when I saw the film the first time, I mean, that's the only cut I saw was the one they released. But when I saw it, I thought, you know, this film is flawed. I said, it's flawed, Claude, because I, I thought it was kind of slow in the middle, and then it got lost at the end. I thought, you know, this film doesn't know how to end. And then I saw it a second time, and I thought, you know, it got better. And by the third time I saw it, I thought, this is a pretty good film. So, in my opinion of it, it kept going up.
2: (laughs) And uh, one quick question from Mark, who is listening to us in Saskatoon. He'd like to know, what do you think of the X-Files when it comes to reality compared to fiction?
3: Well, I I have to tell Mark, I'm not... You know, I'm a regular watcher of the X-Files, so any opinion I have is totally worthless, so I shouldn't offer it. But, you know, I certainly enjoy the sci-fi I see. My favorite films are these cheesy sci-fi films in which the the science is completely bonkers.
2: This this coming from the guy who invented the electric banana.
3: Yeah, I noticed that your intro music there was uh, Donovan playing mellow. Yo, I figured you were going to get to this electrical banana stuff.
2: Stand by, Seth. We've got to take our final break. Dr. Seth Shostak is our guest. SETI.org. If you've ever wondered about past lives or even life between lives, and you think the whole idea is a little strange, you're not alone. Dr. Georgina Cannon, author of the books Return, Past Life Regression, and You, and her latest book, Discovering the Interlife, writes her books to remove the woo-woo from these regression protocols and to show the therapeutic benefit and opportunities that happen with these journeys. Discovering the Interlife is the one book you'll need as you continue on your life journey. As Shirley McLean said about the book,
0: This is a very, very powerful work.
2: So be kind to yourself and find out more about discovering the interlife at www.lifebetweenlivescanada.com. That's www.lifebetweenlivescanada.com. You'll be glad you did. To contact Dr. Georgina Cannon at the Ontario Hypnosis Centre in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, visit www.ontariohypnosiscentre.com.
6: What's new? What's a cat?
4: are The cat is finally out of the bag. Secrets of Cat Attitude Revealed. This is the no-copy cat book that gives you the X-factor. Impersonable insight and experience to understanding cat behavior. And solving problems from the cat's point of view. Learn the secrets of cat attitude revealed by Carolyn Bartz. That will take the relationship with your cat up a notch and to the next level. Discover why cat owners live longer, healthier lives. Medical facts revealed. And why your cat can't help it. Digital photos to guide you in cat care. Safety tips historical and myth gems, and a fun, enlightening quiz. The perfect gift for smart cat owners and cat lovers. If you love your cat, take the journey now. Don't wait. To order your copy of Secrets of Cat Attitude
2: Revealed, visit www.secretsofcatattituderevealed.com. Secrets of Cat Attitude Revealed. The perfect gift for smart cat owners and cat lovers.
4: Sail to sea, and he told.
2: Still to come on tonight's show, Amira is going to be with us. And uh, as you know by the commercials that I read, Amira is a soul mystic. She's a master clairvoyant healer and spiritual teacher, creating life-changing results. We're going to be talking to Amira about her sacred travel to Egypt uh, this coming November. And if you'd like to contact Amira for a one-on-one consultation, 1-800-659-6796. That's the same number you'll be calling to book your uh, trip with Amira to Egypt, that's one 6796 or visit her online at www.soulmystic.com. Seth, what do you believe the most significant astronomical discovery of the century has been?
3: Well, of the century, I mean, if you're talking about the current century, the 21st century, yeah, then I think that that's a, a, a that's a no cerebellumer, that's a no-brainer. Uh, and, and that is the discovery of dark energy. The fact that the universe is not only expanding, but it's uh, you know speeding up. That's completely unexpected and completely contrary to what we had had anticipated. So I, I think that's it. If you what talk you, about uh, the last hundred years, then it would be Hubble's dis- uh, discovery of the expanding universe in the first place.
2: What do you think is causing the universe to speed up?
3: Well, it's you know, it's, it's dark energy, which is just you know, a couple of words to cover up our ignorance, because we don't know what dark energy is. I mean, they're, they're very you know the theoreticians, the physics theoreticians, not the astronomers. This is a problem for the physicists, but uh, they they have you know some way of explaining how, if you will, there could be negative gravity because that's what it amounts to. You know, space is pushing things apart, and uh, that's somewhat contrary to your normal experience. But you know, they have some some way of explaining that. But to be honest, it's still a mystery in the same way that dark matter is still somewhat mysterious. We we think we know what it might be, but we we really. Have n't have n't proven anything one way or the other.
2: Seth, uh, do you uh, do you know anything about the new observatory that they have built at the South Pole?
3: Well, I don't know about a new one. I mean, there have been observatories at the South Pole. In fact, the institute had one down there not so long ago with uh, a very simple thing with a with a lens on it that was bought on eBay, and then a big uh, CCD chip behind it to look for planets. That's that's one thing. But there are other telescopes down there and i don't know too much about them The big advantage of the south pole by the way there are two advantages to the south pole other than the obvious one of great cuisine one, one is that it's, it's, it's pretty high See, it's like 10,000 feet if you're really at the south pole station so you know it's like being up on a big mountain and the air is very dry so it's good good observing conditions but the other advantage and this is a big one is that uh you know you get uh, six months worth of darkness at, at once
2: Seth, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Continued success, and thanks for all the great things that you do in bringing the world of astronomy and SETI to the people, not only on your own radio show, but on the many television shows that you do.
3: Well, you're quite welcome, Bob, anytime.
2: You take care, my friend. Okay. Bye bye. Dr. Seth Shostak, www.seti.org. I can just see the cuisine at the uh, South Pole. Can I have a penguin burger, please? Or how would you like your penguin? Oh, you can tell this diet of mine is not working. When we come back from the news at the top of the hour at six and a half minutes past, Amira will be with us. She is a soul mystic, master clairvoyant healer and spiritual teacher. And she's internationally acclaimed as an intuitive life coach, master energy healer and spiritual teacher. And she's going to be my guest in the next hour one 877 is toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. Thanks, Batman. My name is Rob McConnell, and this is the XO, and a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Talkstar Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Amira Soul Mystic is up next. Don't go away.
0: we